from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, this is Tracy Jan calling from The Post. Am I President Trump, how are you? Hi, it's Robin Gibbon at The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, April 28th. Today, how the cruise industry's decisions helped spread COVID around the world, the briefings that Trump ignored, and millennial caregivers. So as the month of March ended, there were all these cruise ships that were still out at sea trying to find their way home. Roz Helderman is an investigative reporter for The Post. Including a ship called the Celebrity Eclipse. This is a ship that had been all the way down in South America, was barred docking in Chile, and now was trying to get home to San Diego. And while they were sort of steaming north on this very long voyage, folks on the ship were being told repeatedly by ship crew that theirs was a healthy ship. No one had coronavirus on board. And in fact, they were being encouraged to continue to gather. There's this amazing scene where on March 21st, they're a little south of the equator, headed north. The captain and crew gets passengers together for a ceremony where everyone cheers and applauds healthcare workers dealing with coronavirus far, far away and not on their ship. Hmm. There's actually a video clip of this. Let me see if I can find this clip. Okay. Oh, my gosh. There are, like, hundreds of people crowded around the pool. And you see, like, staff in the middle, and they're being applauded. But, like, everyone is crowded together in a way that looks nightmarish now. Yeah, it's really amazing how we can see a photo like that that now or a video like that. And it's just so sort of inherently shocking to us. You know, they believed that they were safe. And unfortunately, it turns out they were not. If you're not going to pick that up, then I'll just wait for the, for the, um. Yeah. Yeah, the nurse calls every morning to check on me, so. Dave Nystrom, he's from Boca Raton, Florida. He and his wife like to take cruises on vacations. A couple years ago, we started cruising. My wife talked me into it. I thought it would be boring. But (laughs) it turns out I'm the one that loves it. And they were on this celebrity Eclipse cruise that got stuck out at sea and was trying to make its way back to San Diego. It was 10 days of straight cruising uh, to get to San Diego. And the captain announced every morning, every afternoon that nobody on the ship is sick and uh, this is a clean ship. However, about five, six days after we left Valparaiso, I noticed a lot of people starting to cough. And then uh, on the 20th of March, my wife, uh, in the middle of the night, got up to go to the bathroom and passed out. I mean, she fell and and, and hit her head. And Well, the next morning, she couldn't raise her right arm. And so I said, we're going down to the medical center. And it was kind of amazing because we went into the medical center and there were three waiting rooms. And the crew waiting room was kind of full. Two of the waiting rooms where the passengers are were almost standing room only. People were coughing. And we waited three hours sitting with people coughing. 
She went to the clinic and ended up spending the last four days of the cruise as they headed towards San Diego, you know, in a essentially admitted to the clinic in a bed. Nobody on the ship, including the medical center, nobody was wearing a mask. The partying continued all the way to San Diego and the announcements kept coming that uh, nobody is sick. And, and did it strike you as strange that the captain was announcing that nobody was sick when your your wife was sick? Yeah, that was strange. And if the captain had gone down to the health center, I mean, it was standing room only with people with coughs and fevers. But there was no talk of COVID-19, none at all. She was, when they ultimately docked on March 30th, she was taken from the ship in an ambulance to a local hospital. She tested positive for coronavirus within 10 hours, and then she ultimately spent 22 days on a ventilator. She just came off this past week, and we're all hopeful is on the slow but steady road to recovery. (coughs) So, And and I'm, I'm hearing you coughing. Do you have COVID as well? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I uh, I tested positive on the 15th of April and I'm I'm in county quarantine for this is day 25 in county quarantine for me. So we spoke to Royal Caribbean about what happened aboard the Eclipse. That's the company that owns Celebrity Cruise Lines. And what they told us was that the captain and crew did not believe there was coronavirus on board. They said that there had not been an abnormally high number of people who were reporting flu-like symptoms. There's always some people who report that on a ship that size. And the boat had been out to sea for a very long time, more than the incubation period for coronavirus. So they simply didn't believe that they had an outbreak on their hands. So this is happening at the end of March, like after a lot of us are already on stay-at-home orders and where it's clear that coronavirus has become a huge problem. How many ships were in the same situation, like the celebrity eclipse, like that they were still sailing super late into this crisis? Yeah. One of the initial dramas of coronavirus was this massive cruise ship that people might remember in Japan, the Diamond Princess, where ultimately 700 people tested positive for the virus. But that was all the way back in February. And the reality is that the cruise industry has been grappling with this all the way until early April. I think that people have some awareness that this has been a really big problem on cruise ships. But we wanted to try to take a track and looking a little bit at what that has meant for the rest of the world. A cruise ship, obviously, one of the things that makes it unique is that it's mobile. People get on it, they stay in close quarters for long periods of time, and then they go from place to place. So how much do you know about places where cruises and the people who got off of cruise ships actually started pretty major outbreaks? So I think that's a question that At the end of the day, you know, epidemiologists, mathematicians, folks who have access to all the data are going to have to do a full study to try to figure this out. The cruise industry has very strongly pushed back to say that they believe that there's no evidence that they actually spread the disease to new places, that they think that the disease is being brought on board their ships and not brought from their ships to locales. But a CDC official has told us that, you know, the science and the evidence 
evidence just does not support that. There are some places where you can see some identifiable clusters of cases that were indeed clearly linked to cruise ships. So for instance, in Iowa, at the beginning of the month of March, they started announcing their first positive cases. Uh, Earlier this afternoon, the Iowa Department of Public Health and the State Hygienic Lab confirmed Iowa's first three presumptive positive cases of coronavirus. And for a series of days, all of their first positive cases were linked to a group that had traveled together in Egypt. All live in Johnson County and recently were on the same cruise in Egypt. Ultimately, the first 16 cases identified in the state of Iowa in the middle of America were all linked to this same cruise ship on the other side of the world. Davino, we can reveal exclusively this afternoon there is a cruise ship off Sydney Heads quite a while away called the Ruby Princess. And there are Australia is another place where they've just been tremendously hit by cruise cases. The Australian government has actually said that 10% of all of their cases can be linked directly to cruise travel. So we tried to just figure out the scope of the overall problem. And we were able to count up at least 55 ships that were affected by at least one case of coronavirus. That's a fifth of the full worldwide cruise fleet. So that's Mm. really just an enormous number. We also spent some time looking at the path of some ships that went around the Caribbean. And we tallied the number of ports that a couple of different ships visited while they had on board a passenger or a crew member who would later test positive for COVID. So as you looked at the path of some of these different cruise ships, what were some of the examples of mistakes or potentially dangerous choices that were made that essentially endangered not only the people who were on the ship, but the people who were in the places where these ships were docking? So there was a few things. First of all, there was just the fact that they continued to sail and they pushed to be able to continue to sail. And they only halted sailing on March 13th. And by that time, countries were starting to close their borders and their ports, and it made it much harder to get home people who were already out at sea. Now, what the industry says is essentially they were learning like everyone else was. And, you know, airplanes were still flying at that time. Airplanes certainly have contributed far more greatly than cruise ships to the worldwide spread of the virus. But that was one thing. The the other thing is that they applied really inconsistent policies about when to quarantine people on board to their rooms. That was also true, by the way, of the way that government treated the cruise industry. The CDC, for instance, applied really inconsistent rules to how they would deal with passengers as they were being disembarked from these ships where coronavirus had been detected. In the case of the celebrity eclipse. On the 30th, 2,300 people left the ship. Oh, my God. And flew all over the world on airplanes, on trains, on buses. And how many people got infected with this virus with those people going home? You know, it's it's crazy. So then what could a potential future for the cruise industry look like? So I think one of the big questions that we've got from here is what happens to the industry going forward. The CDC has put in place a no-sale order that's supposed to last for at least 100 days. But obviously, the industry wants to get back on its feet and wants to start sailing again. And the power in in that dynamic is going to be really interesting 
to watch. You have to remember these cruise liners bring in enormous amounts of money for communities on the coast of the United States and certainly in other countries. Their CEOs are also friendly with the White House, in particular the chairman of Carnival. And Donald Trump has said privately and publicly that he wants to ensure that the cruise industry is not harmed by this crisis. Roz Helderman is an investigative reporter for The Post. Would you consider getting on a cruise ship again, like ever? I'm not doing a cruise until they figure out a way to test people getting on because I'm not getting on again and and going through this. I mean, this has been a nightmare. So we've known for a while and we've reported previously that Trump was warned as early as the beginning of January that there was a there was a concerning outbreak of a new virus in China. I'm Greg Miller and I'm a national security correspondent for the Washington Post. We know now that they were repeated, that they were coming up over and over again in a very important and prominent way because they were being raised in something called the President's Daily Brief. We usually sort of shorthand that and call it the PDB. It's the most important document that U.S. intelligence agencies produce. They devote enormous resources to putting this together in the middle of the night every night so that the president has the most current, important information to work with each and every day. So when intelligence agencies put information in this PDB, it's meant to highlight something very important for the president. And what do we know about how President Trump typically interacts with this daily brief? So we know now with a great deal of data over his entire presidency that he doesn't read his PDB. He doesn't spend much time with it. He's unlike most other presidents we've seen in our lifetimes in his kind of lack of interest in it, refusal to engage with it. He does take an oral briefing from the intelligence agencies two or three days a week, but these PDBs pile up at the White House, largely unread by the president. So our understanding here is that even though these warnings about the coronavirus outbreak were being treated very seriously in these PDBs, that most likely President Trump did not read it or did not spend much time with it enough to actually understand the gravity of of what was there. Yeah, there's two parts to that. So we're pretty certain that his briefer was calling this to his attention in their meetings in the Oval Office, highlighting this for him orally. And we know that the PDB also goes to other senior officials in government, the vice president, cabinet secretaries, the secretary of defense, for example, the secretary of state. So he was surrounded by people who were digesting this information. But Based on Trump's behavior and the things he was saying throughout this period, the warnings in these documents were not registering with him. Are the words about a pandemic at this point? No, we're not at all. And uh, we're 
we have it totally under control. Because of all we've done, the risk to the American people remains very low. It's a little like the regular flu that we have flu shots for. And we'll essentially have a flu shot for this in a fairly quick manner. Yeah, go ahead. Soon. You know, in April, supposedly, it dies with the hotter weather. And that's a beautiful date to look forward to. And we have it under control. It's uh, going to be just fine. Because these, there were, we now know that this was raised, the coronavirus threat was raised more than a dozen times in the PDB during a period, January and February, when Trump continued to downplay the threat, dismiss it as something the United States did not need to worry about, was going to disappear, cases were going to go to zero, would go away like a miracle. And in the context of that, how could things have played out differently if President Trump had been more attentive to this in January and February? So I think that we're the more we learn about the outbreak in the United States, the clearer it becomes that February was a very critical period, a squandered period. The Trump administration points to the restrictions, the travel restrictions it imposed on China. And that, I think many people agree, was an important step. It kept potentially infected travelers from coming into the United States from China, at least some of them. But in February was a moment for mobilization. It was a time when the government could have been preparing diagnostic tests that could have helped us map the spread of the virus in the United States, could have been gathering and assembling protective gear for healthcare professionals, could have taken other steps, including restricting travel from Europe, where the outbreak quickly spread. None of that happened. All of that is going to be very important as we look back on this time and contend and confront the reality that the United States sort of let this virus spread almost uncontrollably for nearly two months after the president was first apprised of it. And when we think about how President Trump was processing and internalizing information back then, early on in the outbreak, how do you think that shapes our understanding of how he's responding to this crisis now and how he might be processing and internalizing information today? Uh, That's a really important question. And I think what I would say is that his lack of engagement with the intelligence reports that, you know, the nation's best analysts put together for him each and every day is only part of a much bigger picture with how he interacts with and responds to information and data. The risk for the country and for the public, I think, is that there is an enormous and obvious kind of disconnect between the president and the experts whose jobs are to lead the nation through a crisis like this. I mean, they are in these positions to help manage an outbreak just like this. Instead, you have a president who is not really clearly absorbing the information he's getting from them, the advice he's getting, and in fact, in in many cases, is uh, undermining the message that they have, have sought to convey about social distancing and things like that, and raising kind of 
theories, problematic, deeply problematic ideas that occur to him and no one in his professional circles, like notoriously the use of potential use of UV light or injections of bleach or disinfectant in people to try to address the virus. That is clearly not something any of the professionals around him, Dr. Burt, Dr. Fauci, were ever suggesting or proposing, and yet he proposes it in front of the entire country in a, in a White House press conference. Greg Miller is a national security correspondent for The Post. And now, one more thing from Tara Barampour, who covers aging and demographics for The Post. So Shelby Small was a college student. I was working at a university in Virginia. I was going to classes and just hanging out with my friends. You know, like just trying to basically be a normal 20-something in the D.C., Maryland, Virginia area. She was planning to finish college debt-free, start traveling, start a business, and look for a life partner. And then her father fell very ill. Me and my dad are really close. I'm actually named after him. So he's currently going through the end stages of COPD. He had chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, and he was on a machine that helped him breathe. And so she put her studies on hold and she left her full-time job to help her mother take care of her father. I make sure his medication's okay, but he's hooked up to his BiPAP correctly. She was 23 years old and her life pretty much shut down. Her social life, her academic life, her career plans. She was focusing on basically keeping her father alive. Uh, We're with him 24 hours every single day. Uh, because it's too much for him. We think of the average caregiver as being an older person, and indeed the average age is 49. But that average is going down each year because a surprisingly large number of family caregivers are millennials. About a quarter of caregivers are millennials. That's about 10 million people who are taking care of a family member at home. It's difficult for anyone at any age to be a caregiver for a family member. It's extremely tiring and physically and and psychologically exhausting, and it can really bankrupt people a lot of the time because they're not able to go out and do their regular work. It's a lonely life, and it's particularly lonely for people who don't have other friends who are going through it or who don't have their own family. So a lot of people, I noticed they're talking about their anxieties of not having as much interaction with people, missing going outside. You know, like that's how I felt even before the coronavirus uh, outbreak happened. When the coronavirus struck, Shelby Small had to be extra careful about talking with caregivers 
you know, who are coming from the outside, like hospice workers, about what precautions they're taking and how they're going to keep people healthy. But at the same time, I think she felt that, wow, now there are other people potentially my age who do understand what I'm going through. And I certainly understand what they're going through. I think she, she said that she felt empathy for young people who suddenly had to stay home. I obviously feel extremely sympathetic towards their plight and towards their anxiety. So I've just been talking to people over instant messaging, FaceTiming people. It feels amazing to be able to have the ability to help other people through this. I think the biggest idea that some of these people who have been dealing with this for years are thinking about now is whether or not this epidemic is going to change policy. Suddenly, everyone in the country and everyone in the world is worrying about some of the things that they've been worrying about for years, like what sort of safety net there is, what sort of health care there is available. And so they, I think, are hoping that the outcome of this will be to eventually change policy in ways that could improve the lives of families who do caregiving. Because right now, billions of dollars of caregiving is given for free by families at their own expense. If the outcome of the pandemic is to open up avenues of assistance for people, then I think it will have been at least a big silver lining. Tara Barampour covers aging and demographics for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Next week on the show, we're going to answer questions about personal finance and the pandemic. If you have questions for our personal finance columnist, Michelle Singletary, record a voice memo of yourself asking your question and email it to postreports at washpost.com. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.